Coming up on Tech Nation, you might remember David Graeber, a professor of anthropology at the London School of Economics, who was an early architect of the Occupy Wall Street movement in 2011. He passed away recently at the age of 59. This Tech Nation interview was recorded shortly before Occupy Wall Street coalesced. I speak with him about his book, Debt, The First 5,000 Years. I also speak with Wes Gilson, the head of artificial intelligence at Siemens Health and Ears. We look at the intersection between artificial intelligence and healthcare. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2012, I interviewed Brown University neuroscientist Seth Horowitz. He's the author of The Universal Sense, How Hearing Shapes the Mind. I mentioned to him a recent television commercial which featured a ringing telephone, and we all got up to answer it. Was this his intention? Of course. But what happens is when you put an environmental signal into something that you're not expecting, you're not going to be necessarily paying attention to the television. You will suddenly shift your attention to what is normally the, the source of that signal. So if you hear a telephone on television, you will look for your telephone. Uh, it's sort of like a friend of mine saying that he really wished that musicians would stop putting police sirens in their tracks because it was making him all paranoid. He's listening to his music and all of a sudden... There's a siren coming down the street. Why? It's about what you think of as normal uh, signal placement in your environment. A telephone is not supposed to be on the screen. It's supposed to be in your pocket, or if you're my age, it's supposed to be on the desk attached by a cord. So it's just a matter of shifting your attention to get you to pay attention. Oh, here's a product in your pocket, and yet we've shown it to you somewhere else. So I have to say that easily, you know, 25%, if not more, of the commercial went by before we realized that. <laughs> this is why sometimes commercials are not really laid out properly. It's like, oh, we have something that will get someone's attention, but they don't think the next steps, like, where is their attention going? So if this was an ad for a telephone, very nice, but you're not looking at the screen. It doesn't really Actually, do I don't even know what it was an ad for, but it tricked this, us several times in a row. Yeah. Same, same thing. This is the problem of using sound in advertising. It's badly handled for the most part. I have a sound design company, and this is what we've been trying to get the word out. Use sound properly or don't use it at all. And unfortunately, most people just don't use it at all. Now, let's talk about Neuropop. You co-founded it. One of the things you do is sonic branding. Give us an example of sonic branding. I mean, the, the telephone ringing was the, well, let me get your attention right now. That's not sonic branding. No. The idea of sonic branding is the idea of identity. My background is in auditory neuroscience, and my partner, Lance Massey, is a composer. And he came up with the T-Mobile ringtone, that da-da-da-da-da. And that came up because he wanted to know how can we really get somebody's attention and lock this is only the T-Mobile sound. And not to do advertising for them, but the idea that I told him was you have to leave psychophysics, how the brain takes the world, from out the, the, the world out there and puts it in your brain. Sonic branding is coming up with a sound that locks your identification of something, an emotional response, an object, a beloved phone or a piece of equipment, in with all these psychological factors. So most people just make a sound and think, okay, I have played that sound 500 times 
when I'm uh, showing you a picture of um, this new car, you will therefore identify this sound with that car. Unfortunately, if you do sound wrong, it's very irritating. Or it's just too complicated, and you'll go, was that a bad soundtrack or something like that? It doesn't use the proper psychological principles. So the way we started with sonic branding was Lance called me one night just after I finished my PhD and said, what's psychophysics? And first I had to explain there's no dash. It's not psycho and physics. It's just mapping the outside world onto your brain. And the best way to do it is to take multiple senses and stack them up. So he was saying, well, I have a visual logo, and it's these little squares that went, I think it was gray, 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 pink, gray. And I said, well, if you make a sound pattern that matches the visual pattern, people will lock onto that. And so he came up with ba 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 to match the visual, and it became one of the two best-known audio logos of all time. The other one being Walter was always um, an Intel logo, ba 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 Yeah. What other kind of things can you think of that you are instantly identified with the sound? Old jingles. If you're trying to come up with a sound that identifies an object, it's much more complicated. It has to be short. It has to get a response very quickly. That's unique to that item. You've been listening to a 2012 Tech Nation interview with former Brown University researcher and neuroscientist Seth Horowitz. He's the author of The Universal Sense, How Hearing Shapes the Mind. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, we remember David Graeber, a professor of anthropology, most recently at the London School of Economics, and most frequently associated with the Occupy Wall Street movement. He passed away unexpectedly at the age of 59. And while you have likely heard of the worldwide German company Siemens, you may not have heard of Siemens Helfeneers. I'll speak with Wes Gilson, the head of artificial intelligence, and how AI is impacting healthcare. This 2011 Tech Nation interview with David Graeber was recorded shortly before the Occupy Wall Street movement coalesced. I speak to him about his book, Debt the first 5,000 years. And while debt may seem to be a funny thing to be talking to an anthropologist about, it turns out that throughout history, debt goes hand in hand with war, the need for coins, organized religions, pawn shops, and more. And now, David Graeber. Dr. David Graeber teaches anthropology at Goldsmiths, University of London. I commented to him that, realistically speaking, debt had to be created the very first time there was an exchange of goods and or services, and one end of the transaction couldn't be completed on the spot. Well, yes, if there's an idea that, you know, you owe back exactly what you gave. In a lot of places, you're not supposed to give back exactly what you gave because that would be saying you don't want to see the person anymore. So in a lot of societies, if somebody gives you a gift, you know, you should give them something back, but you should give them a little bit more, a little bit less. So sometimes people actually want to have debt. The story we all learn is that once upon a time there was barter. 
people say, tell you what, I'll give you 20 chickens for that cow. Um, and that's the way transactions used to work. Then gradually that becomes inconvenient. Say the guy doesn't need chickens right now and you don't have anything he wants. So you have to invent money. And credit comes after. That's the story I heard. What are you talking about? I mean, that's yeah, not true. Yeah, we all hear that story. <laughs> no, it's not true. I mean, for, for I'm an anthropologist. For 150 years, anthropologists have been scouring the world trying to find people who actually behave that way. They don't exist. Um, you find a million other things, but you never find that. And if you think about it, it's not really all that surprising because what the economists are assuming is that here we have a bunch of villagers um, who deal with their neighbors only in what an economist would call the spot trade. You know, I give you this, you give me that, we walk away. You know, so say I, I want the cow, but he doesn't want my chickens. Well, that's okay because he's my neighbor. You know, he knows I'm going to have something he wants eventually. So what would actually happen, in fact, this is what happens, you go up and say, hey, nice cow, and says, oh, really, you want it? No, it's on me. No, don't even think about giving me anything back. Now, you owe him one. Um, he's going to come later and say, you know, nice jade pendant, or, um, you know, my son is in love with your daughter, or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, you're you're and, now in, <laughs> entrenched with each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, um, there's a debt. Now, the thing is that debt isn't specific. It's something vaguely of value of a cow. And there's a, usually a sense of those societies of, you know, a cow is sort of like this, and it's sort of like that, but it's not like this, you know. So you a pig would be a good return, a chicken obviously kind of inadequate. On the other hand, the real question of money is, well, money comes in when you have exact proportions, right? When you could say exactly 27 chickens equals one cow. Well, how does that happen? It, it's hard to see how it would develop out of a system like that because, you know, if somebody gives you a five chickens for your cow, you might say you're a cheapskate. That's completely inadequate. You might make fun of them. Uh, you might try to embarrass them. But you're not going to figure out a formula for exactly how cheap they were. So the question is, what is the incentive to come up with these systems where you figure out exactly how many of one thing equals how many of another? And in fact, what evidence we have seems to be that people started making calculations like that when they were really angry about something. You know, say somebody's cow had trampled my corn, or say somebody's cow had trampled my corn and we got into a fight and somebody's toe got cut off. You know, there's often very, very specific laws about, you know, one severed toe equals 27 silver plates of this quality or That we can find chickens. in the historic record? Absolutely. I mean, the early barbarian law codes of early medieval um, Europe, they not only had every conceivable type of injury and what you get for it, but they had conversion tables so that early Welsh or Irish law codes, for example, they could tell you the exact value of everything in a house. But you couldn't actually buy those things. I mean, cauldrons or rafters or whatever they might have been. Um, there were no markets. In fact, they knew the value so that if something broke or if somebody had to pay compensation, they'd know what could be substituted for what. That seems to be where money comes from. So money followed that. That makes sense because, you know, when someone's really angry, that's when they start saying, no, I demand exactly 27 plates or this means war. <laughs> and not everybody has 27 plates. so Right. So sometimes you have to figure out what you can substitute. Now... At what point do we have the first evidence that there was something called money, that we would call money? Well, that's a funny thing. There's a lot of things that anthropologists 
are familiar with that look like money. Um, there's shell money, bead money, um, wampum, feather money. Cows are often used as something like money in many African societies, for example. Um, the problem is that they're rarely used to buy and sell ordinary household objects or almost anything. What they're mainly used to do is rearrange relationships between people, not only to pay fines, but also by extension to um, arrange marriages. Often they're given to, to pay people for services, but not actually to buy things. So the question is, yes, how do you go from that to a place where you can go to the market and buy a chicken? Um, it's not entirely clear. The first evidence we have historically of that kind of money is from Mesopotamia. Um, there, it seems to develop as a side effect of bureaucratic operations. You have these very elaborate temple complexes where they're trying to allocate thousands of different types of resources to thousands of different workers or officials of different kinds. So they set up a system of equivalents. And it seems that people start using that in their everyday lives. But here's the curious thing. They mostly didn't actually use money in the sense of, here's some silver. They would measure the value of everything in silver. But Actual everyday transactions were mostly on, still on credit. Oh, sure, because it takes money to produce, excuse me, it takes resources to produce physical money. If it was really on credit, you really just had to mark it down somehow, and then you could get everything squared away at the end of the day or the end of the period without having Usually. to physically have some kind of money. Yeah, precisely. Or, you know, often they do it every six months, every year, harvest time. People would settle accounts. Um, they did the same thing in medieval England. They had what they call a reckoning every six months or a year. People would figure out who owed what to whom, and then they'd sort of cancel it all out in a big circle. And what was left over, I'd give you a pig. He'd give me some cash, so forth and so on. Actually, I can see the point at the temple. It's like, stop bringing the cows already. We've got enough problem with the cows, you know. Can you bring us something else or we could just write this down that you owe us something, but stop yeah. with the cows, you know. We, we, we take can't take off, any yeah. more. Take it out of here. Now, it's so interesting to me that an anthropologist wrote a book about debt, not an economist, not a historian. What does anthropology bring to the discussion of debt uh, that's, you know, really relevant? Well, what anthropologists do is they, they talk to people. Um, economists create models. Historians work from documents. And historians have a notorious reluctance to generalize out of if they don't have very specific written evidence of something. So if you look at the history of money, for example, there's dozens of books which claim to be histories of money. But in fact, they're all histories of coinage. They're not histories of money at all. Coinage actually comes quite late. Um, and most transactions in world history are, in fact, credit transactions. But they leave no traces. There's no actual documents. We don't have the ledgers. So as a result, historians just write about what they've actually got. What an anthropologist can do is he can look around the world, see what people actually do right now, and extrapolate what must have been going on. Just by looking at human behavior, because human behavior yes. is pretty much keeps doing the same thing. Well, when you notice every part of the world, you see the same pattern. You figure that pattern must be around for quite a long time. Um, you talked about ancient Mesopotamia, and you're talking about, as I recall, 3,000, 3,500 B.C. And mm -hmm. how do you contrast that with, with Egypt, which was, you know, maybe 1,000 years later, if you will? Well, that's actually really interesting because Egypt, they didn't invent interest-bearing debt right away. And part of the reason for that is they had a very strong state, so they had a tax system. In Mesopotamia, 
they didn't really tax people. Uh, it's partly because they don't re- they don't start with kings. They start with these temples, and then there's palaces, but they never control everything. There are these huge industrial complexes, which are very powerful, but they don't have the power to extract taxes from ordinary people. They're like almost like giant firms. Um, now, there, they invent lending money at interest. And lending money at interest is seems to develop largely because the temples would produce massive amounts of cloth and other products, and they'd need to sell them. So they'd commission to merchants who would go overseas. Um, and they'd advance them at a certain rate of interest because they didn't really trust them to be honest about what their profits were. Um, once that was invented, it suddenly becomes a way of extracting resources from ordinary people similar to the way taxes worked in ancient Egypt. So since they had a tax system in ancient Egypt, they didn't really need to develop interest-bearing debt. And in fact, um, it only hits Egypt about 2,000 years later. So interest-bearing debt was a whole separate mechanism that was created by man, again, a technology uh, mm-hmm. that wasn't, isn't a given in any particular society. Absolutely not. Um, many ancient societies didn't have it. And in ancient Mesopotamia, it came along with a tradition of periodic forgiveness. Um, so well, I that, like that. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, clean slates, they were called. Yeah. No, it's very interesting, actually. Um, I mean, the economist Michael Hudson likes to make the argument that interest-bearing debt and the idea of periodic debt forgiveness were actually were invented at the same time and part of the same package. And one was supposed to necessarily go with the other. And the problem is they managed to export only half the package, and a lot of our problems ever since have come out of that. Um, In fact, yes, um, they had these advanced credit systems in ancient Mesopotamia. Um, We like to think of virtual money as being a new thing. In fact, it's the original form of money. They used expense accounts. They had compounded interest rates, bar tabs, all that sort of thing. Um, And... However, it would periodically cause terrible crises. Say there was a bad harvest. Farmers would fall into debt to creditors. Once you're in in debt, it just gets worse and worse. You fall into a debt trap. They end up having to sell off their vineyards, their fields, their flocks, eventually pawn their children, wives, sometimes themselves, into debt peonage. Society would start breaking down. So kings would say, all right, fine, clean slate. All debts are canceled. Everybody go home. In fact, the first word we have for freedom in any human language is actually the Sumerian word amargi, which literally means return to mother because it was in declarations of debt freedom, everybody got to go home. I love it. I'm all over it. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn. My guest today is David Graeber. Dr. Graeber teaches anthropology at Goldsmiths University of London. A former professor at Yale, he delivered the 2006 Malinowski Memorial Lecture at the London School of Economics, an annual event which honors outstanding anthropologists who have fundamentally shaped the study of culture. He's here today with debt, the first 5,000 years. Well, from an anthropologist's viewpoint, uh, part of the life of all humanity has been war, and Mm -hmm. debt figures into war. Uh, I I think a great example was the whole talk of how Alexander the Great, and with all his great conquests, how he had a great problem on his hands. He had to pay for it. He had an army of 120,000 soldiers, and he had to pay for it. Describe how that war machine, if you will, worked. It's really fascinating. Um, There's a sociologist named Jeffrey Ingham in 
England who's coined the phrase the military coinage complex to describe campaigns like Alexander's in the ancient world. It's probably better called the military coinage slavery complex. Essentially, Alexander borrowed a huge amount of money in order to outfit his army. And um, so essentially he had to win. Uh, he it took about half a ton of silver a day to pay his troops. Now, of course, to get that silver required enormous resources. So like all ancient warfare, there was a huge amount of looting and pillaging, but there was also taking of slaves. A lot of those slaves ended up in the mines producing silver, which was then produced, made into coins to pay the army. Um, in fact, they say that at least until Cortes, Alexander the Great was probably the most successful thief in world history because he managed to take all of the gold and silver that had been piled up in these temples in Mesopotamia that was a sort of base of these credit systems, much like the Federal Reserve has all this gold underneath it, which is never actually used. It's just a sort of basis on which people generate credit. Similarly, all Mesopotamian temples were full of this stuff, and he took all of it, melted it down, and turned it into coins. So whatever he would conquer, he would just take, melt down, pay his army, move on. Exactly, and he had to keep moving. She was generating money as a means to feed war. Familiar, eh? Yeah, and as far as we can make out, that's where coinage really comes from. You know, the habit of actually taking coins or taking gold, silver, melting them, turning them into objects of a specific weight and a specific government, that doesn't come from trade. If you look at the Phoenicians, the Carthaginians, the great trading nations of antiquity, they were actually the last people to make coins. It was the war-making kings. It was the great empires that created coins because coins were originally a way of paying soldiers. And again, if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. First of all, soldiers are the last people in the world you're going to want to extend credit to. They're heavily armed. They're probably just passing through. On the other hand, they tend to have a lot of needs. Uh, you have to provision them somehow. And under ancient conditions, you know, if you have 40,000 guys sitting around, they're going to eat everything there is to eat in a, um, anywhere near where they are in probably a matter of weeks. So how do you feed them? Kings basically came on this idea. They said, all right, I'm going to give each one of them a little piece of gold or silver with my picture on it. And then I'm going to say everybody in the kingdom now has to give me one back again in taxes. Well, that was pretty smart. <laughs> yeah, it works, right? It's very clever. Uh, essentially, you're employing your entire population to feed soldiers now. Um, and, you're, and by doing so, you're creating markets. That's where cash markets really seem to come from. They're a side effect of military operations. Now, while many of us don't know what it contains, most of us have heard of Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. Well, Adam Smith was a, a moral philosopher, and he wrote Wealth of Nations in 1776. Remind us about that and how it's been impactful ever since. Well, the interesting thing about Adam Smith, I mean, this book is considered the foundation of the modern science of economics. And it's a brilliant book. There's no doubt denying that. But that's where the myth of barter really comes from. And the question is, why is it that people like Adam Smith tried to imagine this world where everybody just traded directly with one another and credit didn't really enter in? Well, it seems like the reason is he came from a class of people who felt that credit was something of a problem. Remember that I was saying in, in medieval villages, everybody owed money to everybody else. It was just normal because 95% of all transactions were credit transactions. People of more middle class milieu, uh, shopkeepers, the sort of people Adam Smith really represented the thought of, they had a problem with that. They didn't like extending credit. They felt it got you entangled and all sorts of social problems would best avoid. Um, 
So he tried to imagine a world in which everybody simply traded with one another. And it was kind of a moral idea that people were really pursuing at the time. Remember, he is a professor of moral philosophy. It was very difficult, actually, to create the conditions where people could just walk into shops, buy things, and have no ongoing relations with the shopkeeper, partly because there just wasn't enough coin. Uh, at that time, England was on either the silver standard or the gold standard, depending on the period. They didn't really have enough gold or silver or even ordinary change to make that happen. But there was a feeling they really ought to. So in a way, he created the story that, you know, originally there were no relations with each other. We just traded with each other. And that became the foundation of the notion of economics, which still argues that basically barter is what an economy is all about. Money is just the sort of tech technology we use to further it. Now, um, I was also reminded in your book that various religions come down differently on lending money and charging interest. Let's do a quick review of major religions and just that issue. Well, um, both Christianity and Islam started very much anti and um, usury. In fact, Christianity was, if anything, more severe than Islam. Uh, in Islam, you could charge people a little bit more if um, it was a credit sale. In Christianity, they didn't even allow you to do that. Um, Christianity changed their mind, um, starting with Luther, most of all with Calvin and people like that. Buddhism always had a rather different attitude. Buddhism was sympathetic with the idea of lending money. Um, but at the same time, all the world religions were very concerned about the problem of debt, the, pro the idea that if you don't have some kind of control, the poor would fall into effectively into slavery. Um, either they would literally be forced to sell the, their children or themselves into slavery, or they would end up debt peons of one kind or another. The Buddhist solution was to create the pawn shop. In fact, the first really widespread pawn shops were in medieval China, and they were located in Buddhist temples. It was a way of, uh, for monks to provide an alternative to the local loan shark. In Europe, uh, it was actually the Franciscan monks. Um, it was also monasteries. I was thinking when I was first reading your book about how this was sort of like religion was sort of talking about this, uh, you know, in, in the past, centuries ago. And yet just yesterday at this recording, the Pope publicly cautioned Europe that it would not resolve its economic problems if it only thought of profits. It had to also consider what is ethical with respect to the common good. And I was like, wait, wait a minute, what's the Pope getting involved with this for? But it's been traditional for organized religions to to comment and have opinions on debt. Absolutely. It's been a central issue. If you look at it, it goes all the way back to the beginning, whether it's Sanskrit, Hebrew, Aramaic. The words for debt, guilt, and sin in all those languages are actually the same word. Debt was always the big problem. And very often, those religions use a financial language. They talk about reckoning. They talk about redemption. These are actually financial terms in the ancient world. But the interesting thing is they always start by doing that, and then they reject it. They say, well, what is morality? Morality is just paying your debts. Actually, if you read Plato's Republic, it starts the same way. You know, somebody says, well, morality is just paying debts. It's, that's justice. And then Socrates, of course, says, no, it's not. That's ridiculous. Um, he sort of deconstructs that one right away. And so the rest of the dialogue is, well, okay, if not that, what is it? And in a way, the religions do exactly the same thing. They start saying, well, morality is just debt. And they say, well, except not. That doesn't really work, does it? Um, 
And then they say, well, perhaps it's forgiveness of debts or perhaps it's realization in the Hindu tradition that the debt you think exists doesn't exist because you're part of the cosmic totality you think you owe something to. Um, whatever it is, they have to start with debt and then they throw it away. So the interesting question is why? I've been speaking with anthropologist David Graeber about his 2011 book, Debt, The First 5,000 Years. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, Wes Gilson, the head of artificial intelligence at Siemens Healthineers. He'll give us insights into the data that AI will need to really help healthcare. Stay with us. You're listening to Tech Nation and a 2011 interview with anthropologist David Graeber, the author of Debt, The First 5,000 Years. We're continuing our conversation about organized religion's attitude toward money, starting with its attitude toward debt. Whatever it is, they have to start with debt, and then they throw it away. So the interesting question is why? Why do they feel they have to start with debt? The conclusion I finally came to is the language was almost forced on them by the political situation of the time. If you think about it, throughout world history, most people have lived in large states, cities, or empires. Most people in those empires were told that they were debtors. That's kind of odd if you think about it. How could they possibly all be in debt to like that 1% or 2% of the population that's actually running things? Now, you'll need to explain that. Why? How were they told they were debtors? Well, they literally, they owed money. Most people, you know, um, in ancient Mesopotamia fell into debt at some point in their lives. Um, most One bad harvest to do it. <laughs> yeah. well, it didn't take much, yeah. They were usually skating on the edge. And, you know, when rich people lend money to each other, it's on relatively nice terms, just like when poor people lend money to each other. But when rich people lend money to poor people, it often turns into something very different. And this seems to be what happened. Um, it, whether it's the story of Greece, Rome, 
whether it's ancient China. I think the uh, great classicist Moses Finley once said that um, there was basically one revolutionary program in the ancient world. Whenever there was a revolt, it was always the same demand, cancel the debts. Then maybe they say redistribute the lands, but cancel the debts was always the first thing. Everyone was in debt to the rich. To the victor belongs the cancellation of debt? Precisely, but to the victor belongs the ability to say who owes what to whom. That's the key, because what victors discovered is, you know, conquerors understand this, mafiosi understand this, it's very simple. You know, if, if you have power over someone else, arbitrary violent power, how do you turn it into something where it seems like you're not the thug, that they're the ones who are moral reprobates? You turn it into debt. You say, look, I could have killed you. I didn't. You owe me. Um, you can't pay right now, but I'm going to be a nice guy. I'll let you off the hook, but you better come up with the money next week. Suddenly, they're the ones who feel like there's something wrong with them. And and here's the key thing. If, if you want to reply to that, the only way to reply is to say, no, wait a minute. Who owes what to who here? You know, I'm the person who produces the food, whatever it might be. Um, but as soon as you do that, you're using the language of debt as morality. So in a way, the political situation in the ancient world forced people to talk as if debt is morality. So the, all the religious thinkers have to start with that. That's the way people are talking. That's, you know, to argue with the people in charge, you have to use their language. So they start that way, and then they say, except, of course, that's not really true. That's not ultimately the way the world works. There are all these connotations and tonalities throughout all of history and throughout all of these societies that uh, it's far more complex than I think we realize. It's incredibly complex because you're never quite sure what a lot of these passages mean. Take the Lord's Prayer. We're used to the translation, the Anglican translation, which is, you know, forgive us our trespasses just as we forgive those who trespass against us. Actually, the original line reads, forgive us our debts just as we forgive those who owe us money. But of course, we don't really forgive those who owe us money, do we? So is it a way of saying forgive us or is it as a way of saying we are not worthy of being forgiven because actually we're all sinners? Um. Oh, well, that's good. <laughs> I don't know where to go with that. <laughs> forgiven any debtors recently? Forget, yeah, forgiven any debtors, really. really. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, certainly my mind is swimming with all the examples you give from Mesopotamia to the Greeks and Romans to Irish customs to to India and China. And, and through it all, there is uh, there is slavery. You mentioned uh, uh, in in with Alexander the Great uh, taking mm-hmm. people prisoner and basically putting them putting them in the mines to mine silver. Uh, did slavery mean different things at different times with respect to debt? Well, the interesting thing about slavery is that in a way you fall out of the system. You move from being a player to being a piece, essentially, uh, in the game. So that if you fall too much into debt, that you're eventually enslaved, then you can't borrow, you can't lend, you're not an economic person, your only relation is with your master. So that it's interesting, for example, that in the Irish laws, the ultimate deno- highest denomination of currency was actually the slave girl. Um, people who had been stripped of everything, they became money, effectively. Um, now, it's that shows you something about what money is and what commodities are. Because what's a slave? A slave is a person who has no social relations. Um, the word for free in English actually derives from the same root in German as friend because free people can have friends. They can make promises. They can make obligations. They can enter into contracts or debts. Slaves can't. Um, 
However, since they can't, they can be used as units through which one can make promises to another. Um, you can promise a slave to someone. You can owe, owe a debt in a slave. Um, so in a way, slaves represent that process whereby things, and it used to be in what I call a human economy where you don't have money mediating social relations, um, everything is assumed to be unique, just as people are unique because everybody's a brother, a, a father, a friend to all these different people in unique ways. We are a web of social relations. Objects were, too. Every cow is unique. Every pot is unique because everything has a history. What the market does is it takes things from their histories. And it seems like the very first commodity were actually people who are taken from their histories. And that's what a slave is. A slave has no relations. They are socially dead, effectively, except their relation to the guy who owns them. Now, contrast for us the history of debt in China with the history of debt in India. They're really two different perspectives, right? Well, in some ways it's similar, in some ways it's very different. Um, in the Middle Ages in China, you have the invention of paper money. Now, what happens with the breakup of the big empires of antiquity, and this happens all the way across Eurasia, you go back to credit systems, but it takes very, very different forms. And you know the most interesting contrast isn't even between China and India, but between China and the world of Islam, which of course takes over India at a certain point, um, where in China you have centralized state. People start using these complex credit instruments, but the state takes it up. Um, and thus you have paper money that comes out of that. In the Middle East and to some degree in India, people resist that. People, well, governments are considered, people have a rather suspicious attitude toward government. There's this idea that the market and government should be kept apart. So checks, for example, where check comes from Arabic, um, financial instruments of that sort actually originate in the world of Islam, and they also have similar things in India, and they operate almost entirely outside the purview of the state. And that's where free market ideology really comes from. In China, they believed in markets, actually, uh, but the government regulated uh, and, in fact, tried to encourage markets, but those markets were um, very much under the government's control, ultimately. It was a system that worked fairly well. I mean, China had probably a higher standard of living than any place in the world for much of its history. But in India, in the Middle East, they went entirely the other direction. They had religious courts, um, and governments had almost nothing to do with economic affairs. So would you say that there is any impact? Would, there, would you say there's any legacy in those two different ways that we can see in India and China today? Actually, there's an enormous legacy. Um, first of all, you know, when people say, oh, look, you know, China isn't going to give up capitalism, you know, whatever happens because the market has done all these wonderful things. Well, China knows all about the market. They've always known all about the market. Um, they had much more advanced markets than any place in the world, really, for much of their history. But they always felt that markets had a place. They were a tool, but they weren't the ultimate good. Um, Ultimately, they had a bureaucratic system that made sure that the markets operated smoothly and also that essentially capitalism didn't emerge because you know, they saw capitalists as people who used the market to attain immense personal wealth. They, were essentially, they essentially saw capitalists as subverting the logic of the market and the state as the thing that could maintain markets the way they should be maintained. In the world of Islam, in, the world, in India, 
they had very different attitudes. They had an idea that markets should be completely apart from the government. Um, and that free market ideology, the way we ha uh, think of it today, well, ironically, it really comes out of Sharia because um, Islamic courts uh, were the ones who enforced legal contracts. They were not enforced by the government. As a result, everything was based on trust, credit. They had credit systems, and you know, a court could destroy your credit if you refused to obey it, but they couldn't actually lock you up. So this idea that markets are good, people should obey the dictates of the market. There's this famous line from Muhammad where he says that fixing prices is impious because under free market conditions, prices are set by God. Now, that was the origins of free market ideology. And it gets adopted in Europe in a very different context and turns into something different. But that's where it actually comes from. And now we have today where nations owe great debts, corporations owe great debts, individuals owe great debts, everybody's all owing to each other. In as simple terms as possible, how do you view global debt today? Well, I think that since 1971, we've been moving back to a period of virtual money. If you look at the broad expanse of history, it kind of alternates. You start with virtual money, then you have the great empires of antiquity. They're using coins. Everybody's actually using cash in everyday transactions for about a thousand years. When the empires break up, you go back to virtual money again. You have the paper money in China. You have credit instruments in Islam. You have tally sticks they're using in Europe. So. You go back to virtual money. Um, slavery largely disappears during that period. It's actually the Middle Ages look surprisingly good in retrospect if you look at the, the long cycle. Around 1492, you have this huge amounts of bullion coming in from the Americas. Slavery comes back. Empires come back. That's the period that's ending now. 1971, America goes off the gold standard. We've been moving very rapidly back to a system of virtual credit money. Uh, suddenly you have credit cards. Then we have what they call the financialization of capital. 95% of all money circulating isn't tied to trade or production anymore. It's all speculative. Um, you have the idea that microcredit will save the world's poor. Everything becomes credit. However, it's almost immediately hits the series of terrible crises. The first one is the third world debt crisis, which is actually largely resolved, at least in Asia and Latin America. They managed to pay it back and get out of the system. Um, but now the same thing is happening to us. You have the IMF showing up, uh, S&P, all these vast institutions who are throwing us into debt crises of one kind or another. The reason why I think this is happening is because we haven't learned the lessons of history, and in fact, we've been doing things backwards. In periods where money is not assumed to be a thing, where per periods where money is assumed to be a credit system, a series of promises, of social relations, IOUs effectively, then in almost every case, people have to set up some kind of system to ensure that the whole thing doesn't go crazy and the poor aren't reduced to slaves. That's why you have debt cancellations in ancient Mesopotamia or biblical jubilees. That's why in the Middle Ages they have the laws against usury or debt peonage. Now, so there's some institution is created to protect debtors. What we did was the exact opposite. We created these vast overarching institutions like the IMF, the S&P, whose job is to protect creditors, to make sure that nobody ever defaults, which aside from being economically extremely questionable, um, has had terrible effects. I mean, 
if you look at the bifurcation between rich and poor, that's one of the major reasons. All the institutions are to back up the claims of the rich, and there's nobody really there protecting the poor. As a re- and I think the credit crises we've seen really come from that. The institutional architecture has been made backwards. Well, there seems to be a recurring theme of, well, if you incurred a debt, you should pay it. That's sort of your moral responsibility. Clearly, people are just saying that. That's your moral responsibility. Unless, of course, you're AIG. Oh, that's true. Forgot about that. (laughs) I'll start again. Um, There is a recurring social message that we've heard, uh, you know, throughout certainly our lives, which says, hey, if you incur a debt, you should pay it. The suggestions that we have out of Adam Smith, the moral philosopher, about about you know debt forgiveness, the suggestions of the Pope to say, wait a minute, you can't just be thinking about profits here. You've got to be thinking about the prop- common good. You know, in truth, it doesn't seem to me we have a way to say, okay, an equally simple uh, message to say, and here's how we're going to go about debt forgiveness or debt alleviation. We haven't really given a lot of thought as to how we can view it simply, right? Well, they try to make these things as complicated as possible. You know, how money actually works in our society, it's not technically a secret, but it's surrounded by such obscurantist language we don't really understand that at this point money is essentially created by social convention. The Federal Reserve can just make money. Um, And that's how all those grand institutions like Bank of America, AIG, were bailed out in 2008. In a way, I think in 2008, they kind of let the cat out of the bag. you know, this idea that everybody has to pay their debts. Well, no. If you're a big enough player, if you're too big to fail, you don't really have to pay your debts. They made, by some accounts, $13 trillion worth of bad bad debts effectively disappear by one way or another. They could easily do that for everyone else. It, you know, if there's a sufficiently powerful person who's in trouble, there's something they can figure out. And I think one of the reasons we've seen these waves of protests in Greece and Spain, even to some degree in Egypt, and a lot of that had to do with debt, was because people were starting to say, now, wait a minute, what's this idea of one morality for one group of people and another one for us? I mean, if we're going to live in a democratic society, if democracy means anything, it's got to mean that well, money is just a promise. We all have to decide what kind of promises are made, which promises have to be respected, and which ones can be renegotiated. Now, looking back through history with your anthropologist hat on here, how do people get out of this? Is the answer war? Is the answer a society implodes uh, or other? <laughs> Let me ask you that. Well, the last time around, you know, fall of the ancient world, the beginning of the Middle Ages, it was pretty catastrophic. I mean, oh, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire wasn't a pretty thing. So there is, you know, the strong chance that terrible things could happen. But I think one of the reasons to study history is to realize what can happen, but also what should happen, you know, if we are to save the system, so that if there is a grand transition, which it seems like is exactly what's happening now, this time around, we can do it without quite as much disaster, death and destruction. For many people in the world, that's exactly what they've been experiencing for the last 20 or 30 years. So it's only new to everybody, not just a few. (laughs) Yeah. In the third world, they've been going through this for some time, but they got over it. You know, Latin America, Asia, they're not experiencing austerity right now. They're growing. 
Well, David, thanks so much for joining us. Please come back. See us again. I, my pleasure. I'd love to. David Graeber, a professor of anthropology at the London School of Economics and an early architect of the Occupy Wall Street movement, passed away at the age of 59 in September 2020. Part of the worldwide German company Siemens is Siemens Health and Ears. Wes Gilson is its head of artificial intelligence, and among other things, he tells us that AI requires a whole lot of data. Wes, welcome to Tech Nation. Hi, Moira. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm so glad you're here. I wanted to start out by asking you, so many of us are familiar with Siemens, but who is or what is Siemens Health and Ears? I haven't heard that before. Siemens Health and Ears is an embodiment, if you will, of the spirit of Siemens in general as we moved into healthcare, or as we pulled out from the larger company and, and moved into healthcare specifically as an as its own company. And why it's so so exciting to focus on the health and ears pieces is, is really it's about two core pieces of our business, which are are the engineering component, which we're well known for, Siemens in general is well known for, but also for the pioneering aspect of our business, which is really pushing the envelope and, and creating new solutions for for the world at large. And that, that's what we're really excited about at Siemens Health and Ears is delivering solutions that matter and leveraging our engineering expertise. You know, you know, we've heard a lot about artificial intelligence. What does artificial intelligence mean in the area of healthcare, uh, one way one might imagine that there's a lot of variability between the way I deliver care and the way the next guy delivers care. Not that I'm a physician myself, but just imagine that I was. Um, so there can be a lot of variability between the level of care, um, between the expertise of care, uh, between the availability of certain um, certain therapeutics and then how that guides your care. Uh, there can also be, there's a lot of steps in healthcare and particularly I can point to radiology, which is a, a big focus for, for our company, um, where there's a lot of manual tasks that are done that can be automated. Well, radiology is a great example. Uh, I think all of us have gotten x-rays for one thing or another in our lives. Uh, and I, when I fractured my foot, I was really impressed. I'd you know, hobbled down the hallway, got the x-ray, hobbled back. And just as I hobbled back, I could see right into where my doctor was. And on his screen was an x-ray of my foot. And there's a big red arrow pointing at it. And sure enough, that's where I fractured my foot. I mean, is that the kind of thing you're talking about, being able to analyze data and come up with, with suggested answers, if not the answer? That is spot on, Moira. That's spot on. I mean, nowadays, imaging is digital, which is huge. So just the digitalization of healthcare data makes a huge step forward. And in the radiology space, one can imagine that um, by having that digital information, we can process it through computers. Computers now are amazingly fast. And by being amazingly fast, they can help us do things like artificial intelligence, algorithms. And that, that fracture that you had, we can process that extremely fast, deliver that information to the radiologist. They can confirm it or deny it. Uh, they, can, they can say, no, this artificial intelligence um, answer, if you will, is wrong. Um, or I don't believe in I don't believe it, and that's okay. What it does is it does a, a quick review of it. Well, can you give me some examples, Wes? We see it bigger than just 
a single source of data, but taking data from a number of different sources, those being sources that are feeding into um, clinical care pathways. Now, I know that's a specialized term, but ultimately that says that a clinical care pathway is a way in which we uh, strategically care for a patient by putting them or placing them on a map in the in care of their disease. So for example, um, a patient with prostate cancer. A patient with prostate cancer may come in in the beginning um, and they start to get several tests of that patient. Um, they get things like uh, prostate-specific antigen PSA tests. They do um, other uh, blood tests, et cetera. They get all of that information together. Um, they may even do some imaging, whether that, uh, let's say, a magnetic resonance imaging, and they have information in the diagnosis from that. Now, what they're able to do is they're able to stage this patient and put this patient on this map. And what's exciting about this map is it's kind of like a GPS navigation system. So no longer just a, a static map that you might've had when you were driving, which you and I grew up with. Well, the same kind of basic principle in this in this uh, approach where we're talking about clinical decision support on a on a road an AI based roadmap, if you will, because what it's going to do is it's going to give us predictive information. So based upon the different sources of data and the results that come from that different those different sources of data, we can update that map and we can say, based again based upon um, other patients who have similar profiles. Uh, maybe it's geographic, uh, maybe it's demographic pro uh, profiles, or maybe it's a result of certain tests. We can say, hey, these are your options. Um, and these are based upon data that we're getting from the larger group of uh, patients out there with similar profiles as you. These are the outcomes that are coming from that, or these have been the best outcomes. So uh, perhaps you might like to choose this direction and, you, and the physician can use that in, to guide it. To, to guide the, the care of the patient. Um, it can also be used to inform the patient. And so the patient can make a decision about that, uh, about the right path of care that, that they might want to take. I think this is an exciting opportunity that kind of the predictive component of what artificial intelligence can do with a large amount of data. And it's not just restricted even to the institution they're at, right? So it can be coming from uh, across the globe. Well, that's a really good question. Artificial intelligence is all dressed up with no place to go if it doesn't have enough data. Where, where's everybody getting the data from? Well, I tell you, the data is is definitely a challenge. Um, I will say, more and more people are, uh, or more and more sites are. Um, exploring the data story. They're collecting more and more data, and uh, electronic health records have um, really um, driven healthcare organizations to understand that they have a lot of information at their fingertips, but now they need to understand how can we use it to better care for our patients. So you've taken this to the point where you, the artificial intelligence can then say, I can look at a whole lot of data that you couldn't look at in five lifetimes, if not more. Uh, and I can give you some trends and some some predictions or some likelihoods given what I'm seeing across the board. Then there's a whole other level that uh, you and I had been discussing uh, earlier uh, before the interview in which sometimes it can come up with new algorithms or new ways of looking at things. Can you give me an example of that? This data can be used to develop algorithms that now look at or, or now form models that are non-traditional based. 
So these models now can have um, so many different variables in them. Uh, the number of variables can be way more than we would ever typically uh, design manually. And by having that, they can have, um, they can bring in, um, I will say, I won't say unlimited, but they can bring in so many variables above and beyond what we typically would be able to con uh, construct um, manually on our own, or we would be, be able to construct on our own. So by using the data and the, the large amounts of data, one can imagine that you can then um, build a model that this, this kind of goes into a story of where people argue about explainable AI. Uh, and I don't know if we wanted to go down that path, but the explainable AI is um, understanding the exact model. Um, what happens inside sometimes is um, unexplainable because the complexity of the AI algorithm or sets of algorithms is is too high for us to be able to, to um, really understand. All of these answers have to be checked you know, and looked at another way and another way until we're sure that we have the right answer. So uh, these are really interesting times. They definitely need to be checked. I mean, they definitely need to be checked, Moira. And I think that's, um, again, that goes back to your data question before. Um, if we can have access to more data from many more sources, when the algorithms, um, as the algorithms are being developed, we have uh, we can have a little more confidence. I'm not going to say full confidence. We can have a little more confidence that they may be able to handle data from outside of one small area. So you have to be very careful about your data. You not only want a lot of it, you have to understand it somehow. Fascinating. Fascinating. A lot of work you have to do there, Wes. It is, but it's it's super exciting. And I think this is some, um, I think we're all excited the healthcare world, Siemens Health and Ears for sure, is excited about what artificial intelligence can do for us or can do to help move healthcare forward um, and to, to start under disease, understand diseases better and to help treat those diseases better. Well, I appreciate you coming in. I hope you come back and see us again. Thanks, Mara. This has been, uh, this has been fun. Look forward to another time. My guest today is Dr. Wes Gilson. He's the head of artificial intelligence at Siemens Health and Ears for North America. More information is available at Siemens-Healthandears.com. That's Siemens, S-I-E-M-E-N-S-Healthandears.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.